Welcome to Radio Kemp. You are listening today to our Call to Action podcast series, where transformative ideas from our annual Call to Action conference come to life. Join us on our journey to change child welfare to a child and family well-being system rooted in community, economic, and social justice. Welcome and welcome back. This is the Call to Action podcast series on Radio Kemp. I'm Kendall Marlowe with the Kemp Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Child Abuse and Neglect. Thank you for joining us. In this series, we've heard from those with lived experience in the child welfare system, from those who are parents, those who are professionals, those who experience the system, who now have a story to tell that calls us to action to change child welfare. What if, instead, we heard from someone who came to this work from a very different place or places, someone who worked on many issues in places like Mississippi and Guatemala and Eastern Europe, but still came to call us to action in child welfare? David Tobas, thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm delighted that you're exploring these issues. Well, thank you. David, you once wrote, I have spent my life trying to shift the balance of power toward the disenfranchised. What happened, David? What was your journey from that motivation to eventually this child welfare business? Well, I was born into a family that um, was very progressive, that had uh, love and social justice as its foundation, which created my value system. And then when I was in college, I went to Mississippi in the mid-1960s as a civil rights worker and civil rights organizer, teaching in a freedom school and uh, helping people register to vote. Um, And it made me see the extent of the racism and oppression in this country, but also the power of people working together, organizing to make change. And the changes that came about were really inspiring. And then I had a Fulbright Fellowship to Guatemala after um, college and saw what the United States was doing to underdevelop the country. And in fact, the United States had overthrown the government, the illegally, the legally elected government of Guatemala uh, several years before I was there. And uh, it, it shocked me at uh, the role the United States was playing throughout the world. Uh, And then I came back to this country and worked in a research center um, on Latin America, but that became very isolating and distant from my life. And I started to focus on poverty and issues of uh, justice in the United States um, and stumbled upon child welfare. I was uh, trained as a health planner in graduate school and was hired by the Division of Youth and Family Services the Government Child Welfare Agency in New Jersey, um, which opened up the world of the problems of child welfare and the needs that children have, and then worked uh, with Carol Bellamy in the New York City government when she was president of the city council to create some kind of system to monitor and hold the private uh, child welfare and foster care agencies accountable, and we were successful. We uh, reduced the number of 
children in care, close to agencies that were performing poorly. And I was hooked. It was a fascinating system with a billion moving parts and children who were having difficulties and families that were being harmed. And I could make significant change. Let's go back to that moment. Let's go back to that moment in New Jersey then where you said you stumbled. What did you trip over that stumbled you into child welfare? I stumbled into child welfare. I was uh, I had been driving a taxi cab after uh, organizing uh, or working on Latin America. Um, I felt that was uh, too isolating an experience and I wanted to do something to help people. So I started driving a taxi cab and organizing taxi workers who were uh, being terribly mistreated. Um, And that wasn't me either. And I uh, was not happy. I couldn't have a a life of raising a family and making change. So I applied wherever I could. And a friend told me about a job in New Jersey uh, in the child welfare system. I had basically never heard of the child welfare system before that and worked in a research bureau, the Bureau of Research Planning and Program Development. and it had just opened up the world to me, and uh, it was a, a place where I could could make a difference. What did you first see then when you entered that world? Uh, what surprised you? What were you seeing that was going on that motivated you to do this? Well, I, I guess I, what I saw mostly was when I worked in the council president's office in uh, New York, which was just a couple of years after that. And I saw thousands and thousands of children in the foster care system being cared for by religious agencies that were not concerned or caring adequately for uh, these children. Uh, They were being mistreated. In fact, there was an article in New York Magazine by uh, Nicholas Pileggi that the agencies didn't get the kinds of contracts they wanted and the city was putting too much pressure on them. So they dumped kids in Grand Central Station for the children to be cared for by uh, the government child welfare agencies. It was just a horrible abuse of their uh, responsibility and authority. And so your work in New York, uh, David, as you know, I have experience in a big city, big state system as well. Uh, The problems are huge. The opportunities are huge too. What happened there? As you started to get deeper into this work, what did you see and what did you decide we needed to do about it? Well, there were really two strands of that. One was initially when I worked in the council president's office, I oversaw the human services contracts and uh, foster care in New York is provided by contracts primarily from uh, uh, Jewish, Catholic and Protestant agencies. Um, And what we required was that they be held accountable, that there be a monitoring system set up to see how they were performing. And they had virtually no um, accountability before that. And that accountability system initially made a tremendous difference and reduced the number of children in care. I wrote my doctoral dissertation about that. Um, But after time, the the power of the voluntary agencies to maintain the status quo took over and the system began to slip and go back to the way it was before and got much worse. By 1990, 
1992, there were almost 50,000 children in foster care in New York City. The kinds of reforms that were taking place within government were not enough, um, I thought. And at that time, I uh, had a job uh, running something called the Child Welfare Fund, a foundation that gave away money to reform the child welfare system. And what we did with those resources was to support parents, to organize, to have a voice, to be able to express their needs in public forums, which had never been done. Parents had never organized as a force for social change in, in child welfare. They had organized and tremendously helped their children in other systems and developmental disabilities, in education, um, in health, um, but never in child welfare. Parents organized and worked with their allies to push the system to change, and they made a tremendous difference. It took, took 20 years, but the number of children in care decreased from almost 50,000, as I mentioned in 1992, to fewer than 8,000 today, and it's remained that low. Uh, for several years. And there have been other dramatic changes that have taken place. Uh, so there's significant hope that the system can improve. When you talk about parents, I think we have to acknowledge that the average person's view of parents who get involved in the child welfare system is informed by page one stories on the local newspaper. And I say that having seen one of those mugshots, David, this morning <laughs> in the paper in the metropolitan area where I work now of a parent uh, who was accused, uh, you know, by all publicly available information, it would seem accurately accused of literally causing the death of their own child. And so when we think of parents in the child welfare system, I think that's the people who we most quickly think of. Is that fair? What? Well, who there are, are the who are the parents uh, who have gotten involved in this advocacy? Talk to us about all that. The vast majority of children who come into the child welfare system across the United States come in for reasons of neglect which is often related to issues of poverty. We do not address the issues of poverty that confront families. We address the problems after the fact. There are children who are abused and horribly abused, but that is a relatively small part of the system. Uh, over 85% of the children who come into care <clears throat> come in for reasons of neglect, not for reasons of abuse. Um, but what gets publicized, the images that people have are these two-dimensional views of parents um, focusing on the abuse that's taken place, not on the, the, the poverty that surrounds these people that narrows their opportunities and their choices. Um, and I think one of the other significant problems is that when families are investigated, in the vast majority of cases, there's not a finding of abuse or neglect. We have this massive intrusion into families' homes. Uh, there are three and a half million reports of abuse and neglect. And in only 17% of the cases, is there a finding of abuse or neglect? 
And the vast majority of those findings are neglect. A mother um, is a single parent. Her child is sick. She needs to shop. She can't get child care because we don't provide that kind of support. So she leaves the child at home, a neighbor sees, and she's reported for neglecting her child and could lose her child because of that. So how did you harness those voices? How did you enable or support their power? I believe you wrote a book, something like From Pariahs to Partners, how did that happen? How did you get from those page one mugshots to a credible voice for system change from parents? Well, one of the things we did through the foundation was to support an organization called the Child Welfare Organizing Project to train parents to be leaders, to train them in what the rules of the child welfare system are, what the laws are, how to speak in public, how to advocate for yourself, and then how to advocate for others. And once parents were trained, they became spokespeople. Um, And these are parents with lived experience who have been through the child welfare system. One of the things they did was they were hired by child welfare agencies to help parents who were struggling with the child welfare system as they had either to prevent their children from going into care or to help the families reunite once the children were in care. And parents also began speaking in public forums about what led them to a situation where they couldn't adequately care for their kids or what changes they thought were needed in the system to meet their needs. And we also tried to change the public perception of parents. Parents, as you had mentioned, were demonized as uh, horrible people who have abused their kids. And that happens, but it's a relatively small portion of the population. So we supported a publication called Rise Magazine, which enabled parents to write their stories, to tell their experiences, what happened in their lives, what they think should be done differently. We gave awards to parents who worked above and beyond what you could imagine a parent would do to be reunited with their child. Um, They were then publicly recognized as people who love their children and and want to be reunited with their children. And we had uh, supported a publication called uh, the Child Welfare Watch, which critiqued various problems in the child welfare system. So there could be a public debate about these issues, not only with social workers and with the government representatives, but with parents having their story told. Uh, There's a principle in sociology that contact reduces prejudice. And that's what happened in New York. The child welfare community began to see parents in their full humanity and not as these two-dimensional cardboard figures because they had contact with them in capacities other than as clients and victims. I'd like to take us to another part of the world. You spent some time in Eastern Europe too, didn't you? About 25 years. uh, 25 years, my goodness. I I shuttled back and forth uh, four, five, six times a year working with UNICEF and the World Bank once the starting in 1990, just as the transition from uh, the communist system to the capitalist system uh, happened, 
Um, when the world learned about the horrors of the orphanages in Romania and elsewhere, uh, UNICEF asked me to help develop a plan for how you close those institutions and create community services. And uh, the World Bank uh, wanted me to do similar kinds of work with them in Lithuania and Armenia and other countries. And it was a chilling experience. Uh, Take us there. You got off a plane at some point. <laughs> Where was the first place that you went? What did you see? What was that like? The first place I went to was Romania. Uh, and uh I saw these orphanages. They're large institutions with hundreds and hundreds of children, uh, with very few staff, children rocking. It was um, unattended, desperate for affection. Um, uh, it was a, a painful experience. But what was also disturbing to me is that the people who ran the institutions after the fall of communism were the same people that ran the institutions before the fall of communism. Um, the structures remained very much the same. You need to abolish more than the entire system if you're going to have change. The, the social values persist, and that has to be changed as well. Abolition of a system is necessary, but not sufficient to really bring about change is one of the things I learned in uh, Eastern Europe. I think uh, Pete Townsend of The Who once wrote a lyric, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. <laughs> so how do we, do we have to do that in the United States? With our job? Have, are you I an think, abolitionist? Are you a reformer? Are you an abolish and replace? Uh, put your stake in the ground, David Tobus. What do we need I, to do? I'm all those things. And that's what I've done throughout my career. I've worked with governments to try to push them to change, to work with their uh, willingness to make reform. I've worked outside the system, demonstrating in the streets uh, to push government to change, to, cha to create a movement uh, for change. I'm for reforms, I'm for transformation, and I'm also for abolition. Uh, but I don't think abolition is enough. We abolished slavery, we abolished segregated schools, but the racism that was the foundation of those systems persisted. You, you, you need to start from scratch. Organiz I, I, my PhD is in organizational sociology. Organizations are extremely effective at maintaining themselves. Sure they, they are. They implement reforms to maintain the status quo. You can't fully transform an organization such as child welfare unless it's abolished. You have to start from scratch. That does not mean we, we don't work for reforms now. We do work for reforms. We work for non-reformist reforms that uh, Dorothy Roberts talks about. Um, to narrow the spigot of children coming into care. New York State just passed a law that said you to indicate a case of abuse and neglect, you, you, uh, you can't just have um, some evidence that there's, there's a problem. You now need um, a preponderance of evidence to prove that a child is, uh, has been abused or neglected. Those are reforms that are worth supporting now. But we need to dismantle the system and start and create something new. And what that is needs to be discussed. 
But one idea uh, that's operative in another country is the way the German system works. There will talk, to us, talk to us about that. There are definitely children who are abused and neglected and who can't live with their families. You have to figure out a way to handle them. When you talk about abolishing the system, it's not to abolish the function of protecting children. It's to create a new system. The Germans uh, experience fascism as we're slowly beginning to experience in this country. Because of the intrusion of fascism into the family, Germany is one of the few countries that does not have mandated reporting because of how intrusive it is into families. <laughs> what they have is a system where if a child is at risk of being abused or neglected or there is a report, it goes to a local NGO in the community. And the local NGO, separate from the government, sends a social worker, a trained social worker, to visit the family, to assess their needs, and to provide the assistance the family needs. If the child cannot remain safely, if the, if the help that they provide doesn't work, then that social worker who's been working with the family reports the case to the central registry, to the government, and then they send a protective worker to remove the child. I think that model is much better than ours, where we massively intrude into families with protective service investigations immediately. Can you understand and appreciate the skepticism among many in the child welfare that any of this is, is going to borrow the phrase to move the needle uh, on all of this? Um, you talk about dramatic reforms in New York. I'm sure New York has still got plenty of challenges. David, can you understand the skepticism? I think hard-earned skepticism um, from a lot of folks in this child welfare field who at least feel like they've been tilting at these windmills for 20, 30, 40 some years. And they hear someone like you who is a, a visionary. You have a vision of, of, of a much different system you're calling us to that, but they might feel like they've heard this before. They might feel like they've seen this before. I, I was taught a term in school once, David, called change survivors. And we all learn how to duck down, let the winds of change blow across us, and then pop back up and do what we were doing all along. This might relate to what you talked about with um, what happened in Eastern Europe, those orphanages as well. Are we right to be skeptical or should we be optimistic? I think change is slow until it's fast. <laughs> it took 20 years for the change in New York City to happen. You have to plant seeds. You have to create a movement. You have to try everything. You don't know what's going to work. But it, it made a tremendous difference to reduce the number of children in care from almost 50,000 to fewer than 8,000 is extraordinary. And it wasn't just that that happened. People now have exemplary legal representation if they're at risk of having their child removed or having their uh, parental rights terminated. The, the changes that have taken place um, I think are small, 
compared to the 450,000 children who are in foster care, only a very small percentage in the United States um, are benefiting from these kinds of changes. In most jurisdictions, parents do not have the right for, to legal representation if their child is about to be removed from them. A person who's drunk in the streets has more rights to legal representation. So change is slow, but it is happening all over the world. This uh, Earlier this week, I got a, a report from Australia that the Minister of uh, Child Safety and Women in Queensland just approved a parental bill of rights. It's just the beginning, but it's important. Uh, Finland just funded for the first time parent advocates, parents who have lived child welfare experience, to be trained to help other parents going through the system so that they can not have children placed or that they can be reunited with their children. These kinds of changes are happening all over the world. It's just the beginning. And we need to make these reforms and we need to have a goal of creating an entirely new system. Um, as Gramsci said, optimism of the will, pessimism of the intellect. And I, I think that applies not only to child welfare, but to what is happening in this country. The movement, this this um, slow motion coup that's being planned uh, is frightening, but we have to fight back. We have to be optimistic that our role can make a difference. I think that's what keeps me going. Fighting back is what keeps my spirits up. If you don't fight and you remain a victim, uh, you'll be depressed your whole life. And I'm a, an optimistic person who's been fighting for this uh, for 45 or 50 years. I hope to keep fighting, perhaps not that long, but into the future. I have spent my life trying to shift the balance of power toward the disenfranchised. And it sounds like you're not stopping anytime soon. I hope not to. David, thank you so much for this, for that journey, and for all you've shared. Thank you. Thank you, David Tobis. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here and to work with you in the Kemp Center. And thanks to everyone for listening, each one of us on our own journey, in action, in our own way, to serve the disenfranchised. Journey on, and join us again soon. This has been the Call to Action podcast series on Radio Kemp. Thank you for listening to Radio Kemp and our Call to Action podcast series. We invite you to continue to be an active part of changing child welfare. For more information about how to stay connected with Kemp's efforts, you can learn more about our annual virtual Call to Action conference and this monthly series at www.kempconference.org. Again, that's www.kempeconference.org. Until next time.